Welcome to the Guardian Mindset Podcast presented by attorney Eric Daigle. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of the Guardian Mindset Podcast. We're getting back in a routine here and also want to reach out to some of the subject matter experts across the country and start dealing with some of the important issues which needs to be addressed. And so I'm very happy today to have uh, retired Captain Spencer Fomby uh, back on. And, and Spencer is an instructor at all of our summits, the First Amendment Summit and the Use of Force Summit. And I'm happy to uh, be co-chairs with Spencer and the fact that I'm the legal section chair for NTOA, the National Tactical Officers Association, and Spencer is the public order section chair, which is a new addition to NTOA about two years ago, right? When we start when I first heard of it. So Spencer, welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, you, where are you today? What part of the wonderful country are you visiting? I'm down in Texas. So uh escaped from California and uh, down in Texas permanently. Well, there's probably no snow there, right? That's the key. Well, yeah, it was about 85 degrees yesterday, so it's nice. Oh, yeah, it's terrible, terrible. Yeah, we're up here in the Northeast waiting for another snowstorm, so, you know, anything's possible. So, uh, Spencer, let, give the listeners a, a little background on your on your history and your experience leading up here. I know none of us are really good at this, but for those of us, uh, for those listening, they're always interested in, in uh, your history and your experience leading up to this. Sure. Like you said, I just retired uh, in January uh, as a captain from Boise PD, but I spent the bulk of my career in Berkeley, California. So I was uh, an officer for 20 years for the city of Berkeley, working for Berkeley PD. Um, my background was mostly in the tactical operations. So I was a narcotics officer working on the street team for four years. I was on the SWAT team for 16 years uh, as, an, as an operator. And then when I left, I was one of the commanders. So for the bulk of my career, I was a SWAT team leader and lead instructor. And because I worked in a place like Berkeley, we also cross-trained and worked on crowd control. Uh, and we did that kicking and screaming. And, and one of the things we really want to get across is that SWAT teams should not be the frontline operators for crowd control events. Yeah. And uh, I let's say your experience at Berkeley became your expertise in, in public order response, I would have to say. Yeah, it was the hard way. I mean, I, I definitely was resistant to the idea of taking over the, the mission of dealing with crowd control, but when they handed it to the special response team, SRT, which is my team there, uh, I just decided to learn everything I could about it, go to all the schools, get with people that knew a lot more than I did, and um, try to formalize our approach to it. I mean, we, we had a lot of operational experience working in the Bay um, responding to protests in Berkeley and then also on mutual aid events in Oakland, um, which was one of our, our bread and butter things. We would just go to Oakland to support them. So we had operational experience, but a lot of the formal policies and training needed to be updated. Yeah. And if you, uh, if you're interested, you know, Spencer and I have done multiple webinars over the years. We have another one that we're, we're currently ready to do. And in some of the hot topics, one you've already addressed, Spencer, is you know SWAT teams, tactical operation elements don't belong as the go-to for public order response. They're just not. It's a different operation, and we can talk a little bit about that. And we've also, uh, from both of us, and I'll let you, uh, you know, both of us have had experience in in expert witness cases, and a lot of the. The videos that you see online about the use of less lethal mechanisms, uh, not only, uh, you know, beanbag shotguns, 40 millimeter launchers, launching things into crowds, you know, the videos online make it appear that that's the way that this is supposed to occur. And and unfortunately, both of us agree that uh, that's not the way it's supposed to agree. It's supposed to occur. Would you agree? Yeah, the challenge is your your SWAT team members, which, you know, that was my experience. All of us were highly trained. We trained twice a month. You know, my grenadiers, they went to all the different schools. They were instructors. So they were expert level as far as using all the different weapon systems and using munitions. So the challenge for an agency, especially a smaller one, is how do you have a standalone crowd control team, public order team? How do you have these people with expertise 
to get to the level of a SWAT operator or a SWAT instructor. You're just not going to be able to, to right. develop that. So a lot of times there's a hybrid where the SWAT team members are the linebackers or the grenadiers. They're the ones responsible for the less lethal munitions and chemical agents. Um, and, and that's how people kind of get around that. In the other case, like we did in the Bay Area, Berkeley um, and Alameda County Sheriff's, our partners working on the ground, I mean, those were our SWAT teams. They were out there on the lines. So also going hands-on and using munitions. Um, Oakland PD had a, a good situation. I was envious of my, my SWAT team partners over there because they had tango teams. So they were set up as response teams going to firearms threats and in-progress emergencies that were happening in the protest event, but they weren't on the front line. Right. And that's on the legal side. That's one of my recommendations is that we don't want to get our tactical team members tied up into the the event because that does not make them available for for uh you know shots fired calls or a, a call where a higher level of response is needed and and a lot of times when we're focusing on that we say listen you know keep that keep them outside your tactical team members but but as you know and you probably experienced the same thing with most of the departments in the country being you know less than a hundred their go-to is to call the tactical team and because they have the knowledge and skill set is that what you see out there yeah that's a challenge and you know what we're seeing on the worst case scenarios especially even some of the larger agencies um, some of the cases i've been approached for um you know you have officers that have very minimal training in some cases no training on a weapon system and they're being handed a 40 millimeter or an FM-303 or a pepper ball and sent out to a protest. And we see the outcomes. I mean, we were dealing with all the lawsuits from, you know, George Floyd, all those just started. And so, yes, there's a benefit to having SWAT team members who are experts at using those different weapon systems out there and operational, but you also need to balance having them ready to respond to real, you know, shots fired, calls that might be happening, any type of active shooter event that might be happening in the event. Uh, but it really is a, a resource issue and a, and a training issue. You know, I thought we learned that lesson in 2003 in Boston Police Department, at least on the East Coast. It doesn't have a lot of public disorder issues. Uh, when, you know, Boston Police Department paid $2.3 million for a pepper ball uh, uh, round in the eye, uh, that was handed to an individual with no experience and no ability. Um, but you know, that, that's where departments have to be reminded at all times that the, the training, uh, is the necessary part here to the skill set. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah. And that was actually an, an FN 303. Um, I was the person who brought the FN 303 to Berkeley PD. And, uh, when I went to Boise, I brought that system there i believe in the system it's not the weapon system it's the operators the training is the policy behind it and that's what happens with any of these these uh, weapon systems if you hand it to a person who doesn't know what they're doing they don't have the proper training you have the potential for serious injury or death now what i love to you know in the short time i i have you one of the things that i'm going to dive right in on is that uh you know you're a very uh you're a very quiet, humble guy, but the one thing I know is that you've had the ability to train overseas and interact with uh, with other countries and other units across the across the world that have done this uh, this type of public order response. And what have you found uh, on on uh, around the country when it specifically deals with it? And what is your experience? Let's start with. What type of training and experience have you had across the country that, that you found interesting? Well, the, the public order section, as we stood it up, it started off with a group of us who were tasked uh, working with the NIJ to come up with national standards for public order equipment. That's how it started. So a group of practitioners from the U.S., we had um, the head of the RCMP um, public order unit, and we also had people from the UK and Germany who were involved in that effort to standardize our equipment using standards that had been established in, in Europe for decades. From that, because we're cops, we started talking shop and talking about best practices and tactics. 
And then we eventually, I was already an instructor for N2A, um, teaching a couple tactics classes, talked with Orioles, and suggested that we bring our group and and create a new section within the NTOA. And uh, Thor was happy to support it, created the public order section. And so now we have a group of practitioners from the U.S., from uh, Canada, and from um, from Europe who are working together. What we see overseas is that these tactics, uh, these standards have been established for decades. They, they're much more professional when it comes to public order. Uh, we like to say that public order is where SWAT was in the 80s in the U.S. Right. So if you look at the advances in SWAT tactics and equipment over the years, the way that we've changed protocols and improved our level of training, it's night day compared to what we're doing when we deal with crowds. Our response to First Amendment assemblies is is just really old school in a lot of ways. I mean, we're still doing things that should have been out of date, you know, back in the 80s. I mean, we still have officers out here stomping and dragging and, and using indiscriminate munitions, things like that. But, you know, if you look at the UK, they can't even use less lethal munitions. They don't use launchers in protest. Um, so their tactics are a lot more dynamic. Um, they've, they've found ways to create, you know, response teams, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, arrest teams that can go into crowds uh, quietly and arrest people, kidnap people out of the crowd. You know, that's that's the kind of thing that, you know, we need to do a better job at. Right now, we're just getting in lines, getting in formations, you know, everybody in all their gear, moving against the crowd and throwing indiscriminate munitions. And that's leading to a lot of the outcomes that we're seeing. Well, I mean, uh, th- that is true. And the reality is just because they've had way more experience than us. And, 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 and one of the things that we've seen over the past year, I mean, unfortunately, we saw it a couple of times, right? 2012 with the Occupy movement in 2015 after the shooting death of Michael Brown and then uh, the issues associated with, with you know, a mixture of COVID and, and George Floyd. And by now, what I start to see across the country is people are actually starting to pay a little more attention than they did before. But but our, I think our biggest problem has been a lack of experience. Is, is that what you see out there? If you think about it, I mean, protest is really at, at the heart of, of this country. I mean, working in Berkeley, you know, that was really a foundational aspect of policing in Berkeley. You know, you look at the free speech movement that occurred in the 60s, the people that were the veterans when I came in, um, the people who were in leadership positions when I started in Berkeley PD were people that came up during that time. So protest has always been part of, you know, the fabric of this country. Our response to it has changed over the years. Obviously, we don't you know, use water hoses and, and sick dogs on people. Um, but outside of that, we're not really focused on improving the tactics, improving the equipment, or improving our, our response. It's just not been professionalized. It hasn't been focused on. You think about most team, most agencies that you work with have a SWAT team. Right. Is that would you say? Yeah, most agencies have a SWAT team. Most agencies uh, do not. shouldn't have a SWAT team, but they do. That's a, that's a whole different conversation, but yeah, I mean, there's, pe- there's people that have, you know, 12 guys with rifles and they call it a SWAT team. Um, you know, that, that's a whole separate thing, but when it comes to crowd control response, there's only a handful of agencies that have a real professional specialized unit, like a SWAT team that is dedicated to responding to public order. Right. That is, that's very rare in our country. And so that's the beginning. We just need to start with standardized tactics, standardized approaches, and the standard that we're coming out with from the, the um, public order section of the NTOA is really around establishing capabilities that a team should have and really emphasizing we should have specialized units to deal with this and not just throw you know random police, uh, random patrol officers or SWAT teams at it. Okay, so let's start with um, the... I think you kind of answered the question, but let's just frame it a little differently, which is I, I, I like your point of we're still doing the same thing we always did. I mean, I, I went through the academy in 1991 and 
they're still doing the same stomp and drag training that was done 30 years ago. Uh, what do you, have you seen as the most significant developments in public disorder response in American law enforcement over the years? I think the best thing that people are doing and what we started doing in Berkeley was breaking down into smaller elements and understanding don't get on skirmish lines. Don't just stand in front of a crowd, especially when it's uh, you know an anti-police protest or in resp- a protest in response to an officer ball shooting. Why are we going out there and getting in a, in a line and standing in front of the crowd? Right. Unless there is some tactical reason that we need to keep them from going to some place or we need to actually move that crowd. Why are we creating that presence? So we started breaking Antagonistic. That. And it's just stupid. We're putting our people in a position where we know the confrontation is going to happen. And we need to ask, why are we standing in front of these people right here? And how long are we going to stand here? And then eventually there's going to probably be some use of force because we came out here and stood in front of the crowd. Um, we shouldn't be using technology, um, you know, using te- tactics to identify the agitators in the crowd and finding ways to pull those agitators out of the crowd. And typically, if you can do that surgically, you can allow the protest to continue without you know, having a small number of people throw stuff at the police, declaring an unlawful assembly and deciding that now we need to clear this crowd. And so we get into this position where we're using force against the bulk of the crowd, causing, you know, the, the ripple effect of everything that's going to happen because we've declared an unlawful assembly and decided to give it special order and, and make this crowd leave. We need to find out, find tactics to go in and deal with the people who are causing the problem. So I think you already kind of hit on this a little bit in general, but so the NTOA's public order section, uh, what is the scope or the mission of that? I know it's newly being developed uh, by NTOA. But what, do, what do you look at as your goals and objective with that unit? Well, like I said, the main thing we're trying to do is bring the best practitioners from the U.S. and around the world together to come up with the best ideas and develop this specialty. That's what we need to do. We need to approach it the same way we have approached SWAT and develop specialized training for every aspect of public order. And that's what we're working on now. So we've just recently, we're finalizing the command class. So NTOA will have a public order command class. The first one is gonna be a 40 hour course. Uh, We're also uh, working on a Grenadiers instructor course. So this is specific to public order. It's not a manufacturer's course. It's not one that's meant for patrol or SWAT operations. It's the use of less lethal weapons in a protest event. And so we're going to have a specialized training for that. And then from there, we're going to develop other courses um, that really go to, you know, how you, how you manage as a linebacker when you're field commander, evidence gatherers, all the different things that, that really need to be um, specialized positions and specialized training related to protest response. So what I hear you saying, Spencer, is you're not busy enough and you have free time. Is this, is that, <laughs> is that what I'm hearing you say? <laughs> well, you know, you, you alluded to it earlier. Yes. We're working on a lot of cases. I, I am working on protest cases that started, um, you know, events that happened in George Floyd, 2020. Some of those cases are just now starting. I was just in federal court testifying in the, you know, in a case and, and we're going to be working on these cases for years, probably just from everything that happened in 2020. But what I'm looking at and everybody that I work with, we're all like-minded that we need to fix the problems on the front end. I think in the aftermath and when somebody, somebody goes back and does the numbers and looks at how much money we're going to spend on lawsuits, on the settlements, just from the summer of 2020, it's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. And you look at all the, you look at all that money that's been wasted. How much money did we spend on training equipment, updating our policies for our response to protest events. Yeah, not We're not enough, spending enough. Sure. No. Yeah, not enough. All right, so I know that the public order standards are not out yet, and I know you're still working on them. And and so uh, what could you tell us about 
those standards, uh, you know, a little bit how they're laid out or what their main focus is on them so that we can just kind of have our audience paying attention and waiting for these standards to come out so that they can focus on their policy training and equipment needs. Yes, we anticipate the standard will be coming out hopefully next month um, in conjunction with the new public order command course from the NTOA. The focus of the standard is not to dictate tactics and tell people how to how to do business. It's really focused on giving guidance on how you would create a specialized public order unit. It's not meant for patrol response. Uh, it's it's not focused on the widespread response from an agency. It's, spoke, it's focused on how you create a specialized unit and then giving you guidance around what capabilities that unit should have. So anybody who picks it up, hopefully that's what they get from it is your agency, if you're gonna if you're going to stand up this unit, this is some guidance on the size. This, this these are the missions that they should be able to accomplish. Um, there's guidance in there from um, the N- NIJ work that we did on equipment standards. I'm talking to people all over the country who are reaching out because they have money to buy equipment and they want yep, guidance yep. on that. And I'm telling them, do not just listen to a manufacturer who tells you this is crowd control gear. Because what I found from being a part of this NIJ process was most of the stuff that we have out there is not tested. It hasn't, it doesn't meet any standard. And the British standard has existed for decades. We have an interim standard through the AS, through ASTM and NIJ to give you some guidance on what types of helmets and, and other protective gear to buy and how to actually evaluate that. And so in the appendix of the standard is all that information on how you should evaluate equipment before you spin it. So is this standards manual kind of like, uh, what, like a, you know, an accreditation document or, or similar to the NTOA guidelines uh, last, last issued in 2018? Like how's it going to be laid out? It's, it's based on the uh, the type of response operation standard, the TROVES. So people may refer to it as the NTOA SWAT standard sometimes, but it's it is based on that structure, and it has a, a very similar concept. Okay, and if uh, so, will this standard provide uh, provide guidance on all aspects, uh, meaning policy, training, operations, equipment? It doesn't get uh, very much into the policy aspect. Um, you know, there's other ways you can reach out to the NTOA uh, public order section and we can give you some specific guidance and even some sample policies that we refer to. It's really talking about that language. And I know you, you deal with this all the time, um, you know, with your your poli- the policy side of your business and, and you look at some of the policies because you're involved in lawsuits. And it, it really is pretty sad when you look at some agencies that have policies that haven't been updated in forever and and their policy doesn't say anything. I'll just give you an example. When I got to Berkeley, I started in 2000. When I got there, our policy for crowd control said that a protest event was an unusual occurrence. That's what it was called. It was the unusual occurrence policy. In, in Berkeley? In Berkeley. <laughs> and so <laughs> unusual occurrence meant we treated every protest like an away game. Right. There was no guidance in there about, you know, how we organize our, our planning process, how we inventory munitions, you know, how we manage each operational period. None of that stuff that should be in a, a standard crowd control or public order policy. Um, right. And so after 2014, we had a, a pretty serious riot, an Eric Garner protest that occurred in, in Berkeley. And uh, there was some fallout because we deployed CS and gassed the whole city and, and used a lot of force. And in the aftermath of that, we updated our policy and it's, it's constantly being updated. Yeah. It's, it's, this is a, my recommendation on the policy side of the house is that obviously first, most important is the first amendment standards and making sure, and we're going to go into details of those with our, with our webinar later this week. But the key part is that I, I do agree with you. What's the sad part is agencies have, you know, they update their use of force policy, hopefully, but they're not 
updating the mechanism for public order and and that's putting them into situations and some of the key situations which you deal with all the time is you know declaring an unlawful assembly and kettling issues and and uh use of force issues and arrest, mass arrest issues all those things that come together uh to make these things a difficult situation that we don't respond correctly to no it's a big problem in every case that i'm working there is some aspect um of a policy of an inadequate policy and so i think if we can part of the mission everything you're doing everything we're trying to do at the ncoa is to get information out to the end users right uh, i think a lot of people who don't deal with protests all the time or haven't been sued aren't under a consent decree don't have some other outside pressure to change or to update their policy don't really have an idea what should be in the policy right and unless they're really proactive about going out and trying to seek that information it can be really difficult to find and so we, what we want to do is really streamline that process and give people really specific guidance on how you create a policy, the things that need to be in there. Um, I mean, even things like inventory of munitions, open PD, because a lot of the, the political pressure that they faced over the years really had it dialed in. So when we would respond to Oakland for a protest event. They would check us in Berkeley. You're here. Okay. Here's all your forms. And you would sit there and fill out all the stuff and say, how many people do you have? What equipment do you have? What are the capabilities? Literally how all the different munitions, the different weapon systems, everything that you brought to the event, you had to check in. And then when you would get your mission and go out and then at the end of the day and in the night, you come back and you check back in again to say, okay, this is what we did. This is where we went. And then everything was documented after action reports all that stuff is really dialed in. And I don't think a lot of agencies are, are squared away and, and have that in place. No, and, and I will tell you that as working on the federal monitoring team during that team, during that time, the reason why they're dialed in is because of what happened after Oak of the Occupy and uh, the Frazier report and, and, and all those criticisms. And so, unfortunately, they learned the hard way but uh, but everybody else could learn just by paying attention to what the industry standards are. And one of the things that frustrates me a lot, especially on the policy side, is that I, where I hope this standards manual at least gives some guidance is the people that are making the policy are listening to people that have no experience or training in protest or public order response and they and yes, they have they have real issues. You know, ACLU community, they all want a part of it, but they're not. They're, but they're not bringing the expertise to the table. And and really, where I want to highlight you and the NTOA is that you got to build your policies utilizing experts, utilizing people that have experience, not just what other people want. But what is time tested and mother approved, and 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 you probably see that on a national level. Yeah, and I experienced that my whole career, especially working in Berkeley, and it was a very challenging policing environment with all the politics and and outside influence. But what I'm trying to get across to people and and all my my crew, my peers from NTOA and, and outside, is that we need to take control of our profession. Right, meaning. We need to have the ex experts out there taking control of how we train people, what type of supervision should we have, how you properly use certain equipment and, and munitions, what your use of force policy should look like. Um, you know, we have agencies going out here giving people two hours of training on a 40 millimeter and sending them out to a riot. And it doesn't make any sense, but a professional police officer and people in charge of an agency decided that was adequate. We have other agencies that just gave people weapon systems and just said, you know what, I know you don't know how to use this, but look at this red thing, you know, put the red dot in that direction and pull the trigger, right? That's, yeah. that's how bad this has gotten. So what we're seeing, what really causes change is a lawsuit, right? Somebody, the NAC gets sued, 
they pay out millions of dollars. Sometimes there's policy change that's required as a, as a result of the suit or a settlement. And then that ends up, that leads to the change in policy and training and equipment. And a lot of times it leads to restrictions. We need to take control and make sure that we're doing this on the front end so that we don't have those issues. We just had the same thing in California. They changed the state law um, as it relates to use of force. Um, right before AB48 came out, one of my partners who was on the Cal Chiefs board reached out to me and said, hey, there's this proposed bill. You need to look at it. Can you give us help? Can you respond or give guidance to the uh, Cal Chiefs legislative aid on the problems with this proposed bill? And the bill, the language would have banned the use of chemical agents in California. It would it banned C CS and CN in California. And so I, I wrote a response about what that would mean and the issues with it and um, gave that to the, to the Cal Chiefs group so they can go back in and try to argue. Um, it's still not, the bill's still not perfect, but it wasn't an outright ban. And, and that's what we've saw. I know you've seen it and I've seen it in a lot of our expert cases, a lot of these injunctions that were filed all over the country uh, during the during the George Floyd riots, for lack of a better term, where where plaintiffs walked into court and just asked for broad bans against chemical agent use and and kettling application and 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 really the tires not meeting the road there like it's just a it's what the community wants but not understanding the detrimental effects of that yeah and that's what happens when we lose control of the narrative and we lose control of our own profession we're not dictating what should happen and in a lot of cases i mean you look at the aftermath all the people who are shot in the face with less lethal people losing their eyes people being seriously injured that has led to less lethal weapon systems, impact munition systems being taken away in some places. Um, right. And and that's a direct result of us not having a proper training, understanding how the equipment is supposed to be used, understanding what the policy should say, the supervision, you know, that it's our responsibility as professionals to make sure that that doesn't happen. But you're right, those injunctions, the same thing happened in the summer of 2020 um, in Oakland. You had a group that went and requested a ban on the use of munitions. There was a temporary ban, and then the judge, they had negotiations. And the settlement, the, the language that's in the settlement, it was essentially best practices for the use of impact munitions and, and chemical agents. It actually got back to what any policy should say um, instead of an outright ban. And I'll just tell you, the city of Berkeley, in the aftermath of George Floyd, the Berkeley City Council made a political statement uh, right after uh, we were done with all the riots. And they wanted to ban all of our equipment. And what they did was they took away our pepper spray, our smoke, um, and our CS. And so that, as I just checked with my partners back in Berkeley, they still don't have those back. And the reality and, is... And nobody we, understands the detrimental aspect of that. Yeah, and I and I was the person they came to and said, you know, what you what does that mean for for Berkeley PD? Well, you have batons, right? So you're you're gonna have the officers just run at people like a Braveheart battle. Yeah. I mean, it, that's that's what that's what you're gonna have because you you've taken away all the less lethal options. All right, so let's focus on a couple other things just to make this advisory, if that's actually a word, advisory. Let's go with that. Uh, so based on your standards and your experience, we talked a little bit about policy, so we can just add to that a little bit. What do you think departments across the country, agencies across the country, should do at a minimum to prepare for protests? I mean, obviously, they're not going to learn how to deal with it from this podcast, but just a basic aspect, anything additional that should be focused on in the policy from your side uh, as we look at national standards? I mean, there's the operational aspects of, you know, does your agency have the capability? Do you even have the equipment to deploy to a large-scale protest? I've gone on advisory missions uh, to certain agencies where they don't even have helmets. Uh, I've been on the ground in the middle of a riot where 
some agencies need to deploy CS and their operators on the ground, officers on the ground who don't have gas men. So, you know, in the, in the Bay area, that's kind of basic equipment. You know, you show up to Berkeley PD, you're going to get a helmet, a gas mask and a baton your first day, right? Like we know you're going to need this. Welcome, stuff. And welcome so, to Berkeley. <laughs> welcome to Berkeley, right? So the, that's the kind of thing where you go around the country and people don't even have the basic equipment. Um, and as far as the policy, it, you know, you just need to have the things in place, the legal requirements that you already know uh, need to be in place so that you can respond lawfully to a protest and make sure that your people have the guidance they need so they're not violating people's rights when they go out to the protest. You know, do they know when they can use force? Do they understand um, dispersal orders and, and, and the very specific steps you have to take before you can disperse a crowd? Do you understand all the different aspects of use of force, um, especially using indiscriminate use of force against a crowd? That's that's been a big issue. Is that agency hey, define there. that just so people understand what you're talking about? Right. So you go to a protest and you know somebody throws a bottle or some you know the commander says you know what this protest is done. I'm declaring an unlawful assembly. You give the dispersal order and. Maybe they give a dispersal order or not, but when the officers are using force, they're using force against everybody, not just against people who are posing some threat to the officers or other people. That right. becomes very problematic because, you know, whether they're using a stinger or sting ball, shooting um, impact munitions into the crowd, pepper spraying people, whatever they're doing, they're affecting people who don't pose a threat. And there are people that, either don't understand this or want to argue that, well, we told them to leave and they're not leaving. So now we get to use force against these people, right? No, you do not. You cannot just start beating people up because they won't leave. Right. And a lot of what we've seen you and I have dealt with in, with the less lethal, uh, section is just the indiscriminate firing into crowds uh, launching into crowds, and that is not the legal mechanism and the manner in which that should be conducted. And and that's something that uh, is concerning to us. Uh, who's in charge? Yeah, and another problem, you know, what we see on the command level is we have inexperienced people that end up in charge of a protest event. Um, I used to argue that Running a protest is way more complicated than running a hostage rescue on a SWAT team, just from right. a command perspective. You know, you typically, when you're dealing with a, a hostage situation, it's isolated in a structure. You know, you're going to set containment. You get a, a react team. You know, you set up command and control. You you have snipers set up. You come up with an emergency plan and a deliberate plan and contingencies, right? And then right, you right. kind of work the problem. Right. In a protest event, a protest event with thousands of people who are, you know, doing their own thing, even if it's hundreds of people who have different interests, one person's a pacifist, the other person wants to break the windows and throw stuff at, stuff at the police, and they're all mixed in together, you know, for you to manage that as they're going mobile and you have all these different officers out there running around the city, and maybe you have mutual aid, hopefully you have unified command. I mean, it gets extremely complicated. So you need a commander who switched on and understands tactical principles, the law, the policy, and can apply all of those things in real time. Right. So let's say we have some, because a lot of times what happens in these situations for training, and you and I both know this, the people that we have in training are the people that shouldn't actually be in training. The people in training are the ones that don't want to go. But what I do appreciate for a lot of our listeners is they really always want to be better and get themselves better and learn these new things and, and be, you know, be cutting edge on their skill set. So if you have a trainer or someone's responsible for training, um, what advice, what guidance, where would you send them? Like, what is the, the moving forward for trainers who want to be the best in this area? What I did in my career and what I had all my my instructors do was to go out and find every training we could find and actually go to competing training. 
So even on the SWAT side, we would go to instructors who had different philosophies for how you manage, you know, barricade or how you deal with a hostage situation, different movement styles, um, you know, completely different philosophies. And then we figured out what worked for us operationally right. and what worked for our team. Um, right. That's, that was my approach always. I didn't drink the Kool-Aid of one instructor and say, okay, oh, this is, this is how it's done. Um, unfortunately in the public order world, there's not a lot of operational training available as far as on the ground movement training for the people who are, who are actually in the crowd. And so we're hoping that between NTOA and some other folks that we're working with on the, the local federal level and private organizations, that we'll start developing more of that training and getting it out to people. But if you're instructors, you have people that are going to be a grenadier instructors, less lethal instructors, go out to more than just a manufacturer's course. I've been to those courses. It's good for teaching you, okay, this is this munition. This is what it's called. This is what it does. But what we found is a lot of times the people teaching a manufacturer's course don't have operational experience in protest. And it's more of kind of a show and tell thing of telling you what this munition does. But I would never listen to a manufacturer to tell me how to use this and whether it's appropriate for use in a crowd. We've seen a lot of really bad effects for that. So we want people to go out, get all different kind of training and decide what works for your agency. No, I, I, I agree. And obviously it's a good place for us to throw a First Amendment Summit plug in there because we'll both be at our First Amendment Summit talking about some of the 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 legal standards and operational standards uh, for the trainers out there, you know, there are some good documents out there that we recommend, um, you know, the California police officer standards and training guidelines for public disorder, uh, which Spencer, I think you had some help developing um, the Frazier report, the, the uh, UC Davis report. There's, there's a lot of these reports out there that, if you're just building a skill set in a knowledge base, you know, uh, it, fits, it fits our perfect of knowledge is power, right? The more things that you can look at and compare from different parts of the country, that's how we come up with our recommendations. And we would strongly recommend that you do the same thing. Yeah, well, one of the things I always do, if you really are interested in developing your, your knowledge around this topic, is go find the after action reports for all the different protest events the high right. profile ones they're all online they're all online and there's like 17 of them yeah. you go there and re read those you will find similar themes in all of them um and one of the things that we're, we're doing with the ncoa uh, public order management class is everybody who goes to the class will have access to a library we've uploaded all of those documents and more um, so the students will have access to that information right uh, you did talk about equipment a little bit as we as we head to the end here, uh, if if we have a if we have a command staff on listening to this and intriguing them a little bit, um, what what general advice can you give for equipment? Because uh, obviously, uh, you know, being in the private sector, I don't see this as much except to walk through these sales shows during the conferences when everybody's selling anything in the world. It just makes me. I'll be honest, Spencer. It makes me think I messed up. I should have just made something that is round, circular, black, olive green that explodes with smoke, and I could have been playing golf by now. But, but uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there. How do how do they make their way through that field? I think when it comes to PPE, you just really need to do your research. Um, I would start with looking at things that are what. Well, there's two things. There's a big debate about whether you get your people ballistic helmets or bump helmets. And so we went down that rabbit hole as part of our NIJ process. We had a lot of debate around that. What's the difference? What's a bump? What's a bump hole helmet? Bump helmet. So uh, most, a lot of agencies are wearing essentially a ballistic helmet that has a visor. Um, the problem with that is most of those helmets are not made to protect the wearer from kinetic energy impacts. So if a brick okay. hits your head. That helmet was not designed for that. 
um, just to protect the transfer of the kinetic energy from the brick into your, your skull. It's just not purpose built for that reason. It's meant to stop bullets. Um, but it also doesn't give you the protection on your neck, your ears, the things that a bump helmet, which is essentially um, a motorcycle helmet. If you look at the, the Gentex Argus helmet as an example, British standard okay. helmet that has been tested and, and we know works after decades of, of use in riots in Europe and other places. A lot of agencies in the U.S. are starting to wear that helmet. It's not ballistic, but it is it is purpose-built for you to wear in a riot situation. It, it stops the runoff of fluids into your, your face. If you got hit with a Molotov cocktail, if somebody threw um, you know, some something with some other uh, toxic chemical or fluid, it wouldn't run down to your face or down your neck or down your, your no, back of your shirt. So it's it's very specific equipment. Um, as far as looking at munitions and other toys, I was one of those people that would go to those conferences like, oh, okay, like they're trying to sell the stuff to you. It's like, oh, you're the SWAT team leader for so-and-so. It's like, hey, you guys need this. You know, I, I think you just really need to, to vet that stuff. Ask around, talk to your peers. Um, you know, do your research and see what is getting people in trouble um if you you look at these lawsuits and you see some of the the equipment that people are using that is ending up in in lawsuit settlements um or stuff that's being taken away think about is that appropriate for your agency and how you might use it okay so i think the best thing to to end this on would be uh utilizing some of your experience or all of your experience especially seeing a lot of these events on both the studying them and the expert witness side. Uh, if you, if a command staff member asked you uh, for advice on how to address protest response, which is a very broad question, I know, um, but based on the things that you've seen fail and where they should put their energy, what advice would you give a command staff uh, as they prepared or just worried about dealing with these public order situations. I would say you start getting everything in line now, way before the event happens. We know something else is going to happen. Some other high profile event. It doesn't have to be in your city. You know, I, I've never. We've all experienced. Uh, you know what happened during George Floyd. You know, Eric Garner, Mike Brown, all the other ones that caused nationwide protests i mean there was nothing compared to what we saw during george floyd and the level of violence against police officers and and uh, the aggression from members of the crowd was something i had never experienced in my career uh, the most violent night of my career may 29 2020 uh, people showing up and it was just like okay they are trying to kill us i mean it was it was very clear that you know, we are going to be in the fight of our lives this night. Um, and, and it was absolute chaos that whole night. Um, so you have to start thinking about what are, what are you going to do when that happens again and put those pe place, uh, those pieces in place. One of the things that I suggest is that you find those squared away lieutenants in your organization, those sergeants that really get it and start getting them prepared. I would create a small unit of, of very specialized commanders who do this. What I don't recommend is the musical chairs of lieutenants. And I've seen that happen before where somebody got a bright idea, bright idea that we're going to have a different lieutenant run the protest every time. I mean, it was absolute chaos and you, you're going to have, you know, you have some people that have strengths, right? Somebody's really good at being the public information officer. They may not right. be the person you want leading people in the field. We call that capabilities. <laughs> yeah. Right. This is really basic concepts, but for whatever reason, like, no, we're going to develop all of our people. So we're going to rotate everybody through this job. No. How about you create specialists? You wouldn't have a random Lieutenant run a SWAT mission. Right. So develop your people, make sure that your leaders are squared away, get your policies in place, get the training squared away, get your equipment ready to go and make sure you're training. And if you know you're going to have mutual aid, start talking about things as a regional response and not just, you know, 
let's make stuff up on game day when I see you on the ground. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the best advice I could ask you to give. And so, uh, uh, Spencer, as always, I look forward to our webinar later in the week. I thank you for your time. I know you're as busy as can be. And, uh, definitely this, this is a topic that is going to continue to expand and maybe after these uh, standards come out, we'll do a follow-up and give you an ability to discuss how to implement those standards in your department. And for everybody else, if this intrigues you just a little bit, uh, our First Amendment Summit, uh, these issues are going to be addressed in specific and, and, and in detail to, because uh, I think, as Spencer said, just people aren't putting the time and energy into something that at the drop of a hat could cost you millions and millions of dollars. Uh, and, and that's really what we're seeing. Spencer, uh, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for your energy and your expertise. And uh, thanks to NTOA for giving you the opportunity to uh, try to expand the capabilities of, of departments across the country. Thanks for having me. Um, looking forward to the summit. The Guardian Mindset Podcast is sponsored by the DLG Learning Center. You can find us at www.dlglearningcenter.com. On the Learning Center, you can find an extensive library of articles, webinars, and online training. Listen, if you find the podcast informative, I'd recommend checking out our weekly Path of the Guardian video training and our monthly supervisory continued education program. These programs can be purchased by single users or department-wide. And if you want easy access to articles and information, please download the Daigle Law Group app through either your Apple App Store or your Google App Store. And remember, help those who need your help, protect those who need your protection, and most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. <laughs>